0: This episode is sponsored by Tegas. Understanding expert insights is table stakes for
1: investors today, and there's no better option than Tegas. I've been using them for years to get up to speed on companies, and they've helped me immensely as an investor. Tegas also recently acquired both BAM SEC and Canalys, adding a super fast way to access SEC filings and earning calls via BAM SEC, and offering access to more than 4,000 fully drivable financial models with Canalys. Tegas is well on their way to building a full suite of research products that can displace the le- legacy terminal providers like CapIQ and FactSet. And I'd encourage you to check them out if you haven't recently. They are moving incredibly quickly with many new features and data sets. As a bonus note, Blog readers will know that I run a monthly, uh, well, actually bi-monthly deep dive series sponsored by Tegas. In them, I go deep into industries and companies with fascinating questions using TGIS expert calls. I'd encourage you to check that
0: out if you're interested in seeing how expert interviews can help you learn more about a company and industry. Hello and welcome to the Yet Another Value podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Walker. If you like this
1: podcast, it would mean a lot if you could rate, follow, review, subscribe wherever you're watching or listening to it. With me, I'm happy to have Chris Lee. Chris is a student at Duke University, MBA student at Duke. Chris, how's it going? Good, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Hey, thanks for coming on. Let me start this podcast the way I do every podcast. First, a disclaimer to remind everyone that nothing on this podcast is investing advice. That's always true, but that's going to be particularly true today because we're going to be talking about a very small nano cap stock, uh, 100 to 150 million market cap. So that obviously comes with lots of extra, extra, you know, liquidity risk. uh, Smaller companies have lots of uh, it's tougher to get financing, all that type of stuff. So people should just remember, please do your own research. Nothing on here is financial advice. And then second, with the pitch for you, my guest. You're coming on because you won the Dorsey Stock stock Pitch Competition, you know, that attracted dozens of pitches from college students all across the country. I, I thought your pitch was great. Congrats on the win. And, you know, I, I wanted to highlight some really good work from somebody who's kind of up and coming in the finance world. So when you won it, I talked to Edwin and said, hey, whoever wins, we'll have them on the podcast. So that's it. We're going to dive into your pitch in a second. There'll be a link to that in the show notes if anybody wants to see it. But, you know, since this is a little bit of a different episode, why don't you just give a little bit about your background so listeners can get to know you a little bit?
0: Yeah, thanks, Andrew. Uh, you know, as an MBA student, I, I didn't realize the competition was primarily undergrad. So I, like I told you earlier, I kind of just wanted to win the tickets access. But a little bit about me, uh MBA student at Duke uh, School of Business uh, first year. Prior to business school, I was. in the consumer goods industry for a couple different food companies and in corporate finance and also did a stint in sales uh outside of kind of that experience i've always been interested in the stock market my dad was a and he kind of taught me young uh, about the market but turns out he was kind of more like a day trader momentum type guy so i'm very different than him in terms of my philosophy but Yeah, passionate about finance, passionate about investing. Uh, I consider myself kind of an individual investor on the side right now. And I'm primarily focused uh, on small and micro cap companies. Uh, So, Delta, the company we'll talk about, uh, the pitch I wrote, uh, we'll talk about it, kind of fits that. But uh, yeah, just as an individual investor, uh, you know, have access to management at companies of this size and don't feel like I'm at a disadvantage. In fact, probably actually might even have some info or analytical edges uh, in this space just as a as an individual Uh, but uh, yeah that's pretty much kind of a quick spiel about me Uh, looking forward to talk about the company.
1: Yeah no just two things on that first you know Tegas is a spot I know they sponsored Edwin's competition and they're they're sponsored this podcast so happy to hear that. But when you said I kind of entered the competition just to win the TGIS, uh just to win the Tegas access, I was like, my God, you know, that was the first thing you told me. I was like, my God, this man's an MBA student. And that is, that is literally the greatest recruiting catchphrase that I've ever heard. Like, hey, all I want is Tegas access. If you're looking for fundamental investors, I, I don't know what is better. And uh, I'm going to make sure to email my contacts over at Tegas and let them use that as a catchphrase going forward if they want to. But all that up the way. Let's dive into the company we're going to talk about the, today. Sure. Again, microcap, so everybody should keep that in mind. Uh, consider those risks. But the company is Delta Apparel. The ticker there is DLA. I, I actually, this has been pretty popular in microcap circles. I've known about this company for a while, but that's neither here nor there. I'm going to turn it over to you. Uh, you know, what is Delta Apparel, and why are they so interesting?
0: Yeah, sure. So Delta Apparel is about a hundred million dollar market cap, uh, vertically integrated apparel uh, manufacturer. So apparel manufacturing, pretty boring business, uh, but there are some interesting segments that uh I guess get me excited. So essentially the, the company has three main business lines. The first one is Delta of ActiveWare, which is about three-fourths of the revenues uh currently. But that's kind of your bread and butter basic apparel uh you know business, right? Kind of boring. Uh they sell to you know a diverse set of customers just providing basic activewear. Uh most of the manufacturing footprint is in Central America, as well as the US, and it's a very diversified customer base where no customer kind of makes up more than 10%. That's not what gets me excited, uh, but is, it is a very core part of the business, just, you know, generating the, the vast majority of the revenues, about uh, three-fourths. The two more sexier sides of the company would be, uh, first is DTG2Go, which is a uh, a digital printing uh, business. And so essentially uh, what Delta, the capability they have is they can partner with with, uh, brands and manufacturers uh, to provide a digital print service. So what what this basically means is that instead of having to hold a physical inventory of a lot of different SKUs, they can, Delta can print it for you on demand and they'll integrate with your supply chain They'll be in your factories. They'll integrate with your e-commerce sites. They'll also ship it to anywhere in the United States in less than two days. Uh, So this is a business that I believe is uh, misunderstood. Um, Honestly, a lot of it is the way the company is, uh, the disclosures they give. It's embedded within ActiveWear, Delta ActiveWear and DTG are kind of combined in the same segment. So that muddies the water uh, a little bit. Secondly, they don't necessarily provide regular disclosures about DTG. It's been spotty. Uh, so it's kind of hard for investors to understand kind of what the growth trajectory looks like, uh, what multiple they should be placing on this business. But medium to long term, the company has said, hey, this is a you know 20% plus revenue grower at a 20-25% EBITDA margin, which that's like much better, different profile than kind of the boring right, commoditized activewear business. So that's exciting. The third piece of the business is uh, called Salt Life. Uh, so Salt Life is about a little over 10% of the sales. This is a, I guess, regional lifestyle a brand currently. And so you've probably seen bumper stickers uh, saying, you know, with the Salt Life branding, uh, if you're driving anywhere in the South, even, even in the Midwest or West Coast. And so uh, with Salt Life, it, you know, they're rapidly expanding their retail uh, footprint. The the unit economics are pretty strong at retail. They also have a sizable DTC e-commerce uh, business. Uh, and again, just like DTG to go, it's very margin accretive to the business and also a business that is, uh, you know, it should command a higher multiple than your kind of commoditized um you commoditized Delta back where uh segment. So I think what caught my attention is, you know, COVID was a call a catalyst for these guys where people are buying more, you know, physical goods, right? So obviously that's a good thing, but the valuation where it sits right now, trading about four times forward earnings, trading below tangible book value, uh, which is like $17 a share. I think we're at like under 15 today. So I I think, you know, unfortunately, I've been long a little bit, you know, uh, earlier. So I'm a little bit of a holder right now. I do think it's a very attractive um, entry point just because if you think about the long term where this company is going from a commoditized apparel business to one where they should generate, you know, like 40, 45 percent, 40 to 50 percent of their revenues from more attractive. Higher ROIC businesses, higher uh, businesses that have more of a moat around it, either branding or technical capabilities in digital print. And so, you know, I, I the, in the pitch I kind of said, hey, this business to me, you know, deserves to be trading at eight times at least, which is kind of an industry multiple, uh, and that puts you at about 35 bucks a share. But I, I think that the the value is actually even higher just given you know soul life could be worth the entire uh kind of enterprise value today uh and things like that so that's kind of you know me rambling about why no, i like the company
1: no that that was a fantastic overview and i want to dive into a couple of different things there uh you, you know i i think you could probably tell i'm going but let's start with one thing just you mentioned the valuation right this is training. Four or five times forward earnings, which is also doubles as about four or five times trailing earnings, it's trading underneath tangible book value. So I do think people need to keep that in mind. You know, a lot of times I'll have people on the podcast and somebody will go into the comments and say, hey, this company isn't the best business in the world. And the response will be like, yeah, but it's trading at seven times earnings like it, it. Here, you know, it's below book. It's below. So people need to keep in mind when we're talking about this, like you're really getting paid for. Yeah, it's not the best business in the world, but you're really getting paid that. But just on the valuation, on the book value side, right? $17 per share tangible book. It's actually about $25 or $26 if you include the goodwill there. A lot of the tangible book here is... Accounts receivable, which is fine. Those are generally from very good customers, but a lot of it is inventory, right? You're talking at, at June, 227 million. I believe there's a big buildup as they work towards kind of the summer seasons and the fall seasons, which is the big for the athletic gear side, but 227 million of inventory. Like how comfortable you, do you feel that that inventory is like, you know, we just went through 2021 and Target's writing off all of their yeah. home decor re- inventory and everything. How confident do you feel on that tangible book value?
0: Yeah, Andrew, that's a great question. I, You know, I didn't even mention the book value in my pitch because uh, I didn't want to go down this inventory rabbit hole. But uh, if you think of uh, Delta's inventory, it's mostly blank t-shirts, right? And so, like, this is not, like, a target, like, high fashion or even, like, medium fashion where the trends go out of style and all of a sudden you got to write down inventory, sell it, you know, fire sale it. These are t-shirts that are literally already have a customer on them. They just need to, you know, do what they need to do, print on them, right? So to me, you know, uh, the inventory is almost like it's pretty, you can think about it more like a, more liquid than your traditional apparel inventory, just because yep. of the nature of, of what they sell. And even talking with the company, right, they, like they, a lot of that uh, 200 mil or I think $160 million of inventory, they already have a home for. So it's kind of already spoken for. It just hasn't been converted into cash right? So if you look at their cash balances, it is low, but I like to think for them, you know, this is different than, you know, other apparel companies, but for them, because they're selling blanks, it it is more liquid and uh, not prone to kind of write downs uh, as other, you know, clothing businesses.
1: No, that's great. And, and, you know, I think you mentioned a lot of the inventory is blank t-shirts, and this is going to come out a lot in the pushback, but when you say a lot of the inventory is blank t-shirts, that's good because it's pretty fungible, right? Like if this company went belly up, you'd have five different companies be like, oh, blank t-shirts. So you could probably get close to book, but the pushback would be, and we're going to talk about this for all the businesses except for Salt Life, which is different, but pushback would be, okay, cool. They're selling blank t-shirts in DTG Go, which is where I really want to spend more time. Yeah, they're doing stuff on demand, reducing them, but they're also just like screen printing t-shirts and selling them like, What's the real edge here? This is never going to be a business that is worth more than tangible book or a lot more than tangible book, because it is a, it's about the most competitive, least advantaged business I can imagine. And you can kind of see this, like I was just flipping through the proxy statement the other day. So I'm looking over here, they, they pay awards based on return on capital employed ROCs, I believe what they call it. And, you know, their target to get your bonus is 10%, which 10% 10% is fine. It's a little bit above the cost of capital. Like if you're doing that in this industry, it's great, but it's tough to see how this, like you said, 10 times earnings, 35, 37 per share. That's two times tangible book, 1.5 times goodwill, 1.5 times normal. It's tough to see how you get there when you start saying, Oh, they can barely earn above their cost of capital. Does all that make sense?
0: Yeah. I think it's a very fair, fair pushback for sure. I think on the legacy kind of active business, uh, there's a couple of things I, I would mention. So, so first of all, uh, the pandemic exacerbated this, but there is a trend from sourcing from Asia and overseas and moving that more onshore. And so yep. Delta being, you know, primarily located in, in Central America uh, and the U.S. have an advantage in terms of nearshoring, right? Cause it's the security that it provides to customers is one, I guess, advantage. The second thing that, that this does is um, Central America labor market is quite uh, uh quite good for Delta, you know, through the pandemic. You know, I'm talking to management, it's not like they're having labor shortages. People want to work and they're happy to work at a company at Delta. That's a good job for the workers there. So from a manufacturing standpoint, stability and labor, that those are good, those are good. Again, not huge advantages, but those are definitely advantages. Um How it fits with DTG and even um, Salt Life, kind of the blank business, I will say that the vertical integration in this arena actually does matter. So, you know, the the digital print business, right? They're using, they're leveraging the ecosystem uh, of the activewear business and having those, you know, high availability of those blanks they can print on. And, you know, I don't know the exact numbers, but they've shown over time how most of the t-shirts they're printing on are internally produced versus outside right so it's kind of like they have there's a little bit of ecosystem effect there uh again not a huge competitive advantage uh but i will say on the digital print side if you look at the competitors it's really like amazon you know has a business that's you know it's hard to get a read on you know who I guess the yeah, the shockingly the
1: Amazon digital t-shirt printing business isn't exactly the number one thing they're talking about with investors
0: exactly exactly right uh but they're kind of seen as the market leader and DTG is uh by most accounts the number two player then you have kind of like a lot of different uh, tail uh competitors right so let's think about deciding between going to Amazon and, and Delta well, Amazon's going to have all your data as a brand. You might not want that, right? Uh, they're not vertically integrated, which Delta is, uh, and Delta can still deliver to the U.S. within two days, which is a capability you know Amazon can tout as well. Uh, so I think just looking at the landscape, they're they're positioned okay in that in that regard. Um, but let's come at let's actually come at it from a different track, right? Because okay.
1: So they've announced two big people who are using their digital print budget, DTG to go or whatever it is. Uh, The first one was Hot Topic, which I was laughing with you earlier. When they announced Hot Topic was their number one client, I was like, okay, cool. There's the real paragon of retail in there. But the second one was Fanatics, right? And anybody who's studied... the sports business or anything knows fanatics is a multi-billion dollar company they're eating share like crazy they took over the tops trading card business like this this is the behemoth in sports apparel and sports uh, memory so that is a real partner and a big piece of their business is hey the patriots won the super bowl we want to get people patriots super bowl champion t-shirts within 24 hours right so you could see how not only is fanatics a real company you could see how perfect this is for their business so can you just walk me through not the economics of the partnership but like why does fanatics partner with them what are they doing for fanatics how does that uh obviously not the economics because we don't know the economics but how does that partnership work why would fanatics choose to work with them versus in-house it, going with 50 different partners across the country for every local market all
0: that type of stuff yeah, I think DTG offers an end-to-end solution for a company like Fanatics, right? So I I'll talk a little about the technology. Um, you know, on the surface, like it, it doesn't seem that hard. They buy a digital printer, they print it, they fit full loaders, orders, and you know, that's pretty much what they do, right? But they've actually worked with a the company that that manufactures these machines and From what I understand in talking to the company there is somewhat of a proprietary process where over time they've worked with that manufacturer and know how to operate that machine uh the most efficient manner right so that's there's some technical know-how that DTG brings and they've also worked with large customers such as Hot Topic where they they've been able to integrate in their customer supply chains and kind of fulfill those orders right so Fanatics to me, you know, is a little bit of a game changer for the company because actually it's it's likely going to be the largest customer uh for Delta Peril as they ramp up. So they only started recently. This Q4, they're on a, uh, their Q4, which uh you know they're reporting uh soon this month. You know, it will be the first quarter where they have uh, you know, a full quarter of Fanatics uh business in the books. But uh, I think Fanatics. Uh, you know, understands that they have this. Delta has an end-to-end solution. They've done it with big customers before, big retailers before, and uh, they're building specific capacity and technical processes for Fanatics. So, uh, you know, Cornet, which is a, a machine, a digital, you know, printing machine manufacturer, widely seen as the industry leader uh, in in garment digital garment printing. Delta is not using their machines uh, for Fanatics. They had to work with a different company to come up with a process that was, that met kind of requirements that Fanatics had uh, from a quality standpoint. So actually, I do think quality here is a selling point and the fact that they'd be able to do it with large customers. So that's kind of the Fanatics side. But for Delta, it's great because, you know, now you're getting a sports-based customer, high growth that's not as tied to kind of like your traditional fashion cycles, right? So like all end of the year, like holiday rush, right? Fanatics gives them a little bit more uh, diversification in terms of when the peak times are, right? So the sporting events have different, you know, Super Bowls, different times. It's not all holiday merch season. It could be February, the Super Bowl. It's going to be March Madness. It's kind of consistent throughout the year, so that's kind of what's in it for delta. So
1: in many ways delta, you know, tell me if I'm wrong here, but delta could say hey, oh look obviously we need to stock up for the back to school season's going to be massive, the return to team sports is going to be massive for an apparel a, a a athletic apparel focused business. Christmas is going to be massive. But guess what, fanatics has a almost a completely different peak season, right? Super bowl is obviously their peak. As you said, March madness, you could imagine NBA playoffs that type of stuff. So hey, we've got all this it's not all excess capacity. We have to build extra stuff for Fanatics. We have to go to different markets. But in some ways, they've already got the capacity. This Fanatics partnership just lets them kind of smooth it over. Am I thinking about that correctly?
0: Yeah, I think so. I think they're also, you know, I did mention they're building specific capacity for Fanatics, and they're still ramping up. And so a lot of the CapEx, I believe, is it was meant for Fanatics, and they still have a lot of throughput improvements. So they're not even... They, and they don't even have all the Fanatics business. They don't have a slice of a pie. It's hard to triangulate how much the full TAM is, but uh, based on my research and talking to the company, there's a long runway of just Fanatics business. So, like one of the conference calls, you know, I think uh, uh, the C- CEO mentioned, "Hey, you know, we're not going to onboard any new customers," and you know, people started getting worried about that. But like, listen. They have so much, I think what his point is, there's so much fanatics growth alone that 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 can carry them without kind of onboarding smaller customers. Yep, yep, perfect. Okay, Uh, I think that's good on, on
1: the DTG side. So let's just talk about, I think the interesting piece here is the salt life side, right? Because as you can probably tell, like, I'm a little skeptical of the base business and DTG to go, but again, you're paying under tangible book value. So the market's clearly expressing some skepticism. So you don't need things to go swimming there, but salt life is really interesting to me because it is the type of thing that I've seen companies do and incubate. And obviously there's tons and tons of risk there. This is a small brand. I don't, I don't want to run too far ahead. There's tons of, risk, but I, this is the type of thing I've seen companies grow to be billion dollar brands. It's a hundred million market cap. So I'll pause there. I'm ramping a little bit. What is salt life and why, why am I so interested in the possibilities there?
0: Yeah. So salt life, uh, I mean, if you live under a rock, you never been to a beach, like, you know, then you might not have seen salt life, but I mean, salt life essentially is a lifestyle brand, uh, that celebrates the outdoors, the fishing and, and just being on the beach. Uh, right. So, um, different than the rest of the delta business it's branded and they you know own their own retail locations and so what gets me excited is a couple things first of all the retail build out so they started the year with 13 stores and they're up to like 21 now yeah and that so that's large growth there but the unit economics are quite quite uh strong in terms of the build out where you know they're they're generating very I don't have exact numbers for me, but very strong cash on cash returns when they open new stores. And uh there's plenty of opportunities uh in terms of potential locations, right? So this is a brand that's most well known in the southeast, uh, you know, those kind of beach towns, but there's no reason why they can't expand into um, you know on the northeast, uh west coast, and things like that. So at 21 stores currently. I mean, you could probably, you know, over a decade, five times that number and and still not reach saturation. Uh, and so currently, you know, this company, Cell Life on its own to generate around 10 million in EBITDA for uh, FY22. And it's not crazy to kind of assume a seven to eight times multiple on that, right? Uh, its yeah, Comparables are in that range. And so uh, to me, this is kind of a early, uh, growth story uh, in terms of the retail build out but then also on the e-commerce side again margin accretive to the overall business um, leveraging the blank t-shirts from you know the delta Wear side so there's definitely a lot of synergies being in the ecosystem uh, but a decent amount of the revenues will come from e-commerce and uh, the retail and e-commerce are like i said margin accretive to kind of the wholesale business so a uh, lot to be excited about, but it's mostly kind of like this the maybe spin-off potential. They are reporting Soul Life financials uh separately and they're doing that on purpose to leave the door open for something like that. But it's not crazy to say that you know Soul Life alone is worth you know two thirds or almost even all of the, the value today.
1: No, I I'm completely with you. Look, this is this has been, I think, the most interesting part of the story. Uh, you know as you said it's in the first in the first nine months of the fiscal year 46 million so they're probably going to do what 60 million I think you said it in FY22 about 10 million in EBITDA that's growing really quickly you know it's growing 20 percent plus revenue per year margins are expanding as they kind of get over the build-out stores. like that's the type of thing you could see like it's almost fun with numbers right but Two, three more years of 20% growth, all of a sudden you have a $100 million revenue brand doing 20 million plus in EBITDA. Like that's the type of sexy small cap, mid cap growth story you could see the market getting excited by. You could see a private equity firm getting excited by. You could see a strategic taking it out and using it. So uh, that's why it's so interesting to me. And you, met, you mentioned like everything you said with margin accretive, all that type of stuff. Like I, I 100% agree. I don't disagree. And I, I think the backdoor to that is, hey, it's just a better business to own the brand and have like a brand that people are searching for than it is to just produce all these different things. Let me provide some pushback on Salt life. I, I think the first pushback would be look, and this will actually go a little bit into management. This management team has run Delta Life since I, I think the CEO has been there since the late 90s. They Delta Life IPO in 2000. Like the stock hasn't done great, but it hasn't done terrible, right? It's like a 3x since they IPO it's actually beat the market since the IPO though it's pretty much flat over like the past 15 years or something but you know I think the first pushback would be hey they're growing this cons- uh, direct to consumer lifestyle brand is the CEO who's run a like on-demand apparel athletic like kind of commodity shop is this the right management team and company to build out this lifestyle brand?
0: Yeah, that's a fair pushback. I think so. The company IPO it was a spinoff, and the CEO's been there ever since then. He owns a sizable percentage of the shares, so I, I, I think the first thing I'll say that it, there's definitely strong alignment with with management there. The CFO is is relatively new; she's been there like a little, little over a year, um, so it's it's hard to say kind of what her uh, how she fits in uh, longer term, but. Uh, Listen, these, I mean, they're good at what they do in terms of, you know, making blank t-shirts, right? I, they have separate, Salt Life is run as its own segment. So there's leadership there. I'm not too familiar with whoever heads up that that uh, division. But I would just say like, for me, I, I look at more of the execution. So when they started FY22, they said, hey, we're gonna build out, you know, seven new stores. And they did that, right? So from that standpoint, eh, like there's no reason for me to doubt their ability to execute. And I think having that experience on the blanks uh side is beneficial because uh, you know, they, they can source a lot of their t-shirts internally, which is a good thing. And uh it it seems like from a store selection standpoint, they are doing a good job picking the right markets, picking the right locations. Uh and so it's kind of like I'm not worried about it until something goes wrong and you know, in recent history, so Light has been, has been firing all cylinders. So I, I just go back to having that alignment with management that helps me sleep a little bit better. Um, but uh, in the past, too, Salt has been trying to do all sorts of different things, make sunglasses and things like that. It's like, listen, you guys are good at selling your brand, uh, opening stores, selling the apparel. Like, just focus on that. I think they're doing that. Yeah, no.
1: Look, I definitely hear you there. I'm I'm laughing at the sunglasses because they're selling three hundred dollars sunglasses. Which I get, you're a lifestyle brand, but you're you're selling. Man, uh, if I remember on. correctly, the shirts are like twenty five dollars yeah, shirts. So yeah. with three hundred dollars with three hundred dollars sunglasses, it, it doesn't really make a lot of sense to me on on that
0: dimension. It doesn't but, match up.
1: yeah. No, uh, it's really interesting. You know, I I think of this almost, I don't know if they're still a popular brand, but I I remember back when I was like kind of just coming out of college and stuff, everybody talked about the Life is Good company. Do do you know them?
0: Yeah, I'm familiar with them. Um, The the comparables I had in mind were like Tombi Bahama and Vineyard Vines, which are like, you know, they're doing like half a billion in sales or more than that. So to me, I don't know what Life is Good sales numbers are, but there's no reason like so life, in my opinion can't be you know something like that in the half billion range longer term yeah i mean two million uh decals have been sold so there's cars you know two million cars in the united states rolling around with these decals and they definitely punch above their weight in terms of the social media following uh so i definitely think this is like a regional to national story maybe even international
1: I I did think Vineyard Vines when I was looking at this company as well, but you know, Vineyard Vines is like a little more upscale. And the funny thing, so they're, Salt salt Life isn't going to be more upscale, but the funny thing is I was going to say, and Vineyard Vines is bigger. It's like, yeah, they're bigger because they grew and they like expanded into lots of little different things. That's what Salt Life could do over time, though, you know, at the same time, the beach lifestyle, like I'll wear it on the podcast, you can wear it casually, but I don't know if it has quite as many like uh, growth, growth opportunities as Vineyard Vines, which, you know, people started using some of them for like a a lot more occasions. But yeah, look, I think it's a really interesting company. One of the things I love, if you go on the website, uh, all the male models they use are like, they're actual guys, right? Like, I'm sure they are models, but it's a middle-aged man who, You know he's in okay shape, but it's not like he's sporting a 17 pack or something. There's there's another guy who's got a little bit of a gut, but it just looks like the people who are actually using the product, which I think is like kind of interesting for authenticity and everything. Anything else we should be talking about on Salt Life? uh no, I think we covered that
0: one pretty
1: well. Obviously, they report it as a separate segment. I think it's really early. They're growing stores. You know, I'd almost like to see them grow the store base a little bit faster and lean into that, but what do you think the end game for salt life is? Like there's, there's three options, right? Salt life grows 20% per year for the next five years. And it becomes bigger than the Delta brand. And they, they resegment themselves as, you know, like monster energy drink used to be a different company. And then monster grew so big, they rebranded themselves monster. Like salt, Lake grows so big, they rebranded, they rebrand the whole thing. Salt life Uh, option. Number two, they sell it to someone in a few years or option number three, they spin it out. And obviously all of these are assuming it's successful, but, which one of those three do you think would be the most likely
0: that's tough I mean, I think a a spin off or sale is uh makes sense to me uh I guess as a shareholder that probably that those two options would probably unlock the most value on the flip side though, I do think like there is a benefit to being in the i guess delta apparel ecosystem just from a blank t shirt standpoint uh yep. so I honestly have no. I don't have a uh, any like unique point of view on this. I, I do think the spinoff and the sale would unlock value, and so I, I guess I am more rooting for that. But I see the other side.
1: You're
0: you're true <laughs> a
1: true investor rooting for it. You know what? It'd be nice to take the mark. Let's sell this exactly. I, I like it. Uh, just two more things that kind of came up when I was researching these guys. We just talked a lot about how. They do a lot of disclosure around Salt Life. And when you mentioned the DTG to go or whatever, you said, hey, they don't really provide disclosures. And one of the things I was impressed with your write-up is you went through a lot of old things they said. You know, I think you had something at the 2020 annual meeting they gave a little bit of – you use that to kind of back into the revenues for DTG. But, you know, I, I look at the company and say, okay, well, they know to disclose a lot of stuff on Salt Life so people can start valuing that. And they're really cagey on the disclosure on this high growth business that they think they're, you know, they're going to grow rapidly. They're taking care with fanatics. When I see a company being cagey around disclosures with a segment like that, the first thing that pops in my mind is, oh, the economics of this segment are really bad. They know it and they're trying to kind of hide the ball from investors. It just goes back to the worry I originally had there. But I just wanted to expand on that a little bit and give you a chance to kind of comment on that.
0: Yeah, I think it's it's fair. And it's a frustration I know other investors have uh, that they've kind of brought up the company. But I think. So I think that the the long and short of it is basically they were disclosing the revenues and rough margins or targeted margins when things were going well, which was kind of like 17 through 20. Yeah. And then. Uh, based on like piecing things together either from you know transcripts, old disclosures, old investor decks, talking to other uh investors i I believe that the the revenue actually dropped in f y twenty one and so obviously you might not want to disclose a high growth segment that's all of a sudden you know facing tough comps and had a down year right. The second piece is on the profitability i I do think like the fanatics ramp up is hurting margins and and this is not something they're being a cagey about. The you know CEO Bob mentioned on the call the last conference call. Say, hey, listen, like we're running at like essentially a flat break-even uh, operating income margin. Um, but once all this, you know, once uh, we ramp up our throughput, which they can increase like forty percent or you know or higher on the fanatics line, they're going to get in line with kind of like fifteen percent operating profit margins and closer you know twenty percent margin so i think it's a combo of basically like dgg did have a down year in 21 and uh and that there, there are profit uh short-term profitability concerns but in my opinion those are will be alleviated once you know uh they they exit kind of the startup phase but yeah listen i like of professional investors and they can't piece like i asked them hey what's what, what numbers you got for DTG? and they're like oh look at i don't have it like so there, there are people that own the stock that don't even know like the revenues by year for this segment right which is kind of scary but but like you said if this is a high growth segment that can do 20 plus percent 25 percent EBIT margins long term and should on a normalized environment be grown you know, 15 to 25%, listen, that, that multiple is, is much more than what the legacy business deserves. And so I think if they want to realize that value of this segment, they have to do a better job with their disclosures. And I think the C, the new CFO recognizes that and they're adding a little bit more in their, their SEC filings, but it needs to be consistent. So hopefully next year uh, we'll see some, some, some more information on that, but yeah, it's definitely an issue.
1: Perfect. And then last question, I just want to talk about, I, I know you've talked to management a little bit, it sounds like, but I just wanted to ask about management because it's, they seem good to me, right? Like, obviously I think seeding salt life, which as you can tell, that's what I'm most excited about. I think has the most potential getting through COVID and a kind of commodity uh, business that has some leverage. Like, I think all of that speaks really well to them, but There has been a little bit of hiding the ball with the margins as we just discussed. The CEO, as I mentioned, he's been here for 20 years. The stock's flat over the past 10 years. You know, it's a hundred million market cap company. Uh, I did. They, they are a little promotional. I, I think, as you mentioned in your write-up, there's only one analyst covering them, but it's a sponsored analyst, which is always a little bit of a red flag for me. And they did, I, I was just flipping through their website and their investors. He went on the TD Ameritrade network to talk about uh, Delta a couple months ago, which there's nothing wrong with that, but the host clearly had no clue who Delta was. And they were just like, you're an apparel company, tell us about inflation and consumer and didn't ask about Delta once, which it just, you know, it just screams to me a little bit of a company that's trying to be promotional, and uh I, I just wanted to discuss that. I, I don't want to say red flag, but it was a little bit to me.
0: It's funny you say that because I actually have the opposite view. I don't think they're promotional at all. Because uh so the analyst coverage, I mean, listen, how, no one's going to cover these guys, right? So like the sponsored research, you know, it, it gives you a little bit of attention. I, I don't think that's necessarily something you can knock them on. I think historically, like the last couple of years, they do like one conference a year, the ICR in the West Coast in Q1, and that's pretty much it. So um, it's not like they're hitting the micro cap, all the conferences and, and doing all that kind of stuff, right? The TD Ameritrade one is interesting because that kind of is a, was a step out of what they normally do from a outreach standpoint. If you listen to the interview, though, the guy could be, he was not, bull, he didn't say anything that investors, you know, would have taken as bullish because they were talking, the conversation was focused on inflation and passing through yeah. pricing. So like, I was excited when he went on because, hey, you know, like any, getting the word out on this name is good, but like, he, he didn't say anything that could be construed as bullish in my opinion. Uh, so, and that was the first kind of retail outreach. I would. I mean, it's a retail focused or uh, oriented platform, right? Um, so,
1: I, and I look, don't, I'm with.
0: Yeah. I'm with you because the TD Ameritrade thing, like, look, like you get
1: it. It's a professional network. It's a professional anchor. Like, obviously, it's not CNBC or something, but they invite you to come on. You know, most people are going to take up that invite, so it's hard. Just when I watched it, I was like, oh no, the anchor did no work on the company, so it's more the anchor no idea. than them. But it's just yeah. like kind of built into that thing. So let me just one more. Point of pushback here, right like it's a hundred million market cap company as you you even said, hey, they have one analyst, it's a sponsored analyst, but that's because no other analyst is going to care about a hundred million market cap company, which my answer yes, but at the same time, like you're a hundred million market cap company you're doing uh you're doing a stock road show every year you' a stock conference one or two every year, you're doing four earnings calls, you're paying for a sponsored research, and most people estimate the cost of being a public company a million to $2 million per year, like you throw it all together and it's like, hey, why are these guys public? Why don't they just go private, sell themselves to private equity, the management, right, whatever it is, and spend that, let's say it's $2 million all in public company costs for the public company costs, the accounting and the sponsor research they're doing, plus the management time. Take that 2 million and throw it back into Salt Life. Take that 2 million and put it out to dividends to your, to your new private owners. Like, I don't care, but
0: just why? You know, why? Yeah, you know, I don't have a great answer for that, but I will say there will be value that's unlocked if they are sold to a larger company, right? So I think like the competitors in the space, they see, you know, the digital printing capabilities, that's attractive. They see a fast growing brand that's attractive. Uh, so, I mean, I guess when you put it that, I, I, I've i never thought about it this way in terms of the costs you mentioned. I, and which is why i don't think they're a promotional company but when you frame it the way you did i understand kind of where you're coming from hey Um, and
1: look this isn't a delta specific thing though the sponsored research it it does take a different angle but this is the question i ask every two or three hundred million market cap company right like why you if you're spending three million per year and you're a 300 million dollar market just go private and put that money in your pocket or something you know
0: yeah, I think you know one potential catalyst is the CEO is getting older, um, and he, you know, like he's a career industry guy. You know, when he wants, to, I mean, there's there's probably a point where he wants to exit, and the, the private equity exit is is one that I think could or hopefully would unlock value.
1: All true, and if I remember correctly, I'm trying to flip through the proxy real quickly as we talk. He owns like six or seven percent of the company. He owns six point one percent of them, yeah. which. Uh, You know, when the stock was at 30, that was real, real money there, right? Now that it's at 15, still a lot of money, but it's not quite as real money. But if you think it's worth 30 in a sale, that, that's real money, real value unlocked. Maybe split the company up into sell the commodity business to one person, sell the salt life sides to the other. You can imagine a lot of value unlocked there. Mint a pretty penny and keep all that public company costs in your pocket instead of paying it out to a bunch of different providers chris i think this has been great uh i always like to ask before we wrap up anything that we didn't th- hit that you think we should have been talking about anything we kind of glanced over you think we should have hit harder
0: yeah i'll just kind of reiterate some of the, the key points i made because i don't know if we touch on all of them but the first one is that you know obviously inflation is on everybody's mind right this is a like you said commodity consumer Co- cotton In- inflation has cotton, been, a big exactly. cotton been a big driver here cotton inflation has been a big driver here so I one of my points in the in the, the write-up was that, listen, like, uh, cotton inflation was terrible uh, this year. Um, essentially, they're short cotton in, in perpetuity, right? Uh, but even with that, like, listen, the FY22, they are probably going to finish with the highest operating margins in, you know, recent history for the company. Uh, and if you take a look at the chart in cotton, it's obviously come down quite a bit since its uh, peak. Um The second thing we kind of touched on it with the fanatics, you know, essentially uh, DTG is running at flat operating profit margins. That will go back up to 15% once the ramp up happens. Uh, So that was one of my points, just given, you know, how much more room they have uh, on the throughput improvements, which they can do without spending a lot of money. Uh, But long term, uh, and we touched on this throughout the conversations like, listen, this company. Is going from a very boring one, uh, where they generate you know 75% of the revenues from a legacy commoditized activewear business, to one where, you know, in the near and long term, about half of the revenues will be DTG and salt life. And so with that, you have better or, or you know investment internal investment opportunities. Mm-hmm uh have more of a moat so dvg i mentioned there is a technology moat and being vertically integrated helps them and in salt life it's a it's a well-known brand so there's a moat around that right uh those that as that mix changes long term you know i i feel like it deserves a a higher multiple as a result of that so that those were the three kind of key points uh in my in my write-up i think Things like trading below tangible book value, uh, trading at four times earnings, uh, so life potentially being the biggest, you know, worth the entire market cap today, uh, potential spinoff, like those are all kind of cherries on top of it. this is a very cheap stock. And it's not that crappy of a business if you think about the medium and long term potential. So that's, that's, it, that's, another, uh,
1: that's another that's <laughs> another slogan I can take for many portfolio companies that I, I own or look at. It's not that
0: crappy of a it's, business. It's not though. that crappy, <laughs> and there's alignment with management in terms of ownership. So you know, that's cool, and the board.
1: Yeah. Cool. Well, Chris Lee, really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Look again, Chris's MBA at Duke first year. So uh, anybody who wants to read his write up, get in touch with him. I'm going to include a link to the the stock pitch that won the stock competition in the show notes. So anybody can go on there. His email is right at the top of it. So you can uh, easily reach out to him on that. So Chris, thanks so much for coming on and looking forward
0: to chatting soon. Thanks, Andrew. Hell out of fun. Thanks for going easy on me. (laughs) I don't think I did, but you did great. (laughs) Thanks for that. A quick disclaimer, nothing on this podcast should be considered
1: investment advice. Guests or the hosts may have positions in any of the stocks mentioned during this
0: podcast. Please do your own work and consult a financial advisor. Thanks.